On several occasions in the past, I have referred to an article that was published anonymously by Leadership Magazine over 10 years ago. It catalogued the long 10-year struggle with, of the author with uh, this whole area of sexual sanity, particularly in his thought life and a destructive pattern of behavior. It was a blunt article without being obscene or profane. And it received more feedback from the, leader, from the readership than any other single article in the history of that magazine. And they ranged all across the spectrum. Some were indignantly questioning whether this author ever was a Christian. Others were absolutely shocked that such a respectable magazine would even publish such a letter, uh, an article like this. And yet others said, now you have made us question all our leadership. We don't know who has skeletons in their closet. But there were also many positive letters. Letters that thanked him for bringing out into the open a battle that so many are fighting on the inside, all the while thinking that they are absolutely alone. Five years later, Leadership Magazine's editors asked him to write another article, looking at the issue five years down the road. And upon receiving that request, he fished out his first article and reread it. And he said, I had doubts all over again whether I did the right thing. Was it really necessary to explore the problem with that specificity? With that much honesty? And should I really write again? He said, until one whole set of letters settled the issue for me. And they more or less said these, in the follow not in the following words, but this idea. Please tell me what to do. You said God has come through for you, but God hasn't come through for me. What am I to do in the meantime? Help me to solve my problem. That is at least one among many reasons why I periodically speak on this subject and sometimes take a large block of time like this series to hit the subject broadside on. The whole issue of sexual sanity in the kind of society in which we live. Now some of you are uncomfortable with that. I've had feedback of some sort. You know. Some people tell me there's more to life than sex. Of course there is. Bill Hybels of Willow Creek Church once put it very bluntly in an article. He said, every time I preach on a sexual matter in my church, and there are 6,000 people in each of three services in his church, he says the church grows quiet in a hurry because sex is on our minds. Anything that occupies that much of our thought life and powers that much of our personality ought to be addressed from the pulpit because some of those thoughts are misguided and in need of God's direction, correction. And listen to this last sentence. To not preach about sex would be to desert our posts as preachers at one of the most active battlefronts in our culture. There are a lot of people in this church and elsewhere who silently, if not audibly, are asking the same kind of questions. Tell me what to do. God hasn't come through for me yet as He has for you. Help me to solve my problems. And you can be asking that question all along the spectrum of the struggle for sexual sanity. And this is only representative, I think, of many. Some young teenagers who are still virgins may be saying, help me, how can I hang on to that virginity in the, pres in the face of incredible pressure to compromise? Others are older virgins for whom the prospect of marriage dims with every passing year and who come to the sobering realization that a whole aspect of their personalities may never be satisfied if they hang on to their convictions. Others are what we call secondary virgins. 
people who were sexually active before their commitment to Christ and have now committed themselves to purity and you know they have an additional dimension to the problem and this I don't make it up that's what they've told me they now have the memory of the real, very real pleasures of sexual intercourse and these things are burned into their memories by the very nature of how we have been constituted by God and they play havoc with the fantasy life sometimes and then there are married couples perhaps in relationships that are less than satisfying in this area and therefore susceptible to either mental, emotional or physical adultery with somebody that they think is much more suited to them and whether or not any of these people ever translate some of these thought experiences into life their fantasy life ravages them and leaves them in many cases with shame and with guilt and no one to talk to and then there are those who are actually practicing acts that are forbidden equally ridden with guilt and with shame and not knowing how to get out of it and all of them are saying the same thing help me how to solve my problem and you know you deserve something more than just just say no you deserve something more than just rules to follow the same man who wrote the leadership article before the first one wrote, said he said I've read numerous articles and books on temptation but I've found little help if you boil down all the verbiage and the 10 point lists of practical advice for coping with temptation basically all they said was just stop doing it that was easy to say I knew some of those authors I knew that they too had struggled and failed as I did in fact I had preached many a sermon on handling temptation but look at me practical how to articles proved hopelessly inadequate as if they said stop being hungry to a starving man intellectually I might agree with their theology and their advice but my glands would still secrete what insight can change glands it's a good question now I obviously can't solve your problems for you in one Sunday or even five of them because as we shall discover some aspects of the struggle for sexual sanity are rooted in traumatic experiences in the past and if you're in that kind of a situation you probably need help from the body of Christ from gifted individuals over long periods of time and I thank God that he is raising up people in our congregation who are gifted to minister in that way but what I do promise to do though is to give you some foundational principles and practical applications that go beyond just say no principles that are so foundational that you're going to need them no matter what other kind of help you need and are going to get principles that I have tried to put to work in my own life. Some of these I've learned the hard way. Nobody was around when I was 17 to teach me some of these things. Others I've learned the easy way as God and His grace has prevented me from getting into a lot of messes and has taught me. But all of these things I have been trying to put into practice and have been putting into practice. One more comment. Even though the specific applications will be geared to our current focus on sexual sanity, the principles apply to the full range of the pursuit of holiness. Most of which has to do with relationships anyway. And as we learned last week, sexuality is at its very heart a relational issue. Relationships with God, the pursuit of intimacy with Him, and simultaneously the pursuit of intimacy with one man or one woman that you are committed to for life. And so the principles apply, and if there are some of you who are fortunate enough that you don't have to struggle at all to be sexually sane people, then you take these principles and apply them in other areas. Where do we begin? You might remember that this whole series of messages, the temporary interruption to Mark's gospel, was launched by the last section we studied in Mark, 
where Jesus said this kind goes not out but by prayer and the context also made it very clear that it was a prayer of faith that's why the prayer guides that I've been preparing for you each week are critically important they are an integral part of what we are trying to accomplish in these five weeks so I will urge you to redeem the time get those prayer guides and saturate this whole process with prayer and we've been certainly doing that in our revival prayer times in between the two services but what, what does it mean to pray the prayer of faith faith in what some of you who are older baseball fans like myself might remember the New York Mets of 1969 the previous year they were down in the dumps and all of a sudden they won the World Series and in the last phases of their campaign their chant if you will was you gotta believe you've gotta believe for many people that's what faith is you gotta believe that's faith in faith and I'm afraid it doesn't do any good the Ottawa senators can say you gotta believe from now till April and it isn't going to change the situation very much you see the value of faith or the lack of its value is intricately tied up inseparably tied up with the object of one's faith and for us as Christians in this context in which we are looking at it it is faith and persuasion in what God has done for us when we chose to become disciples of Jesus Christ and as Anderson points out so well in his book the depth of our faith depends on the depth of our knowledge of the object of our faith the extent to which we know understand and are persuaded what happens to people when they trust in Jesus Christ almost the first verses that some of us were encouraged to memorize when we became Christian was 2 Corinthians 5.17 if any man be in Christ he's a new creature all things are passed away all things have become new magnificent verse but what does it mean what does it really mean for all things to become new when a lot of things don't feel new now there have been many people who have presented the answer to that question in many different ways and all of which are good and right I have developed something along with some friends who have made a great influence in my life that has helped me to understand this in a way that is simple easy to memorize and guides application so let me share that with you again any of you who have been coming to this church for more than even a couple of years have heard me speak on these subjects before for you it comes by way of refresher and reminder and for the rest of you who haven't heard it before I trust it comes as something helpful and significant for the purposes of this exercise imagine yourself as being made up of four parts we aren't in fact concrete creatures who can be compartmentalized the scriptures focus more on the unity of the human person but for the purposes of understanding let's imagine ourselves made into four parts our hearts our minds, our spirits and our bodies. Let me define each one of them for the purposes of today's exercise. Proverbs chapter 4 verse 23 and by the way don't worry about copying down the verses overhead. Everything's available for you in the kiosk to pick up. Focus on understanding. Proverbs 4.23 says above all else guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. The heart therefore refers to that which is at the very core of our being. Our real essence if you will which spills over and touches everything else that we do in our lives. That's what the Bible means as a, by our hearts. Then we talk about the mind or the spirit sorry. By the spirit the scriptures refer to that within us which responds to the things of God. The Godward side of us if you will. And then we have our minds and in our minds I'd like to include three things. First of all our rational faculties, the logical skills that we have. 
then our feelings and the reason I put feelings in there is that most often, almost always how we feel about a certain situation is determined by how we interpret events that have been fed into our lives and then I will include will in there as well because what we choose to do is often determined by how we think and how we feel so mind, will and emotion are kind of lumped together in one section and then we have our bodies the other three things are intangible. The spirit, the heart and the mind are intangible. But the body is the corporeal, tangible part of us. Now having looked at those four things and how we are going to use them today, let's see what the scripture says about the human being in the two conditions. When we have not yet committed ourselves to Jesus Christ, which is our natural state in which we are born into this world, and after we make a commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord. And the scriptures refer to it as the old self and the new self. Let's compare the two. First of all, what does it say about the heart? Here's what God says in Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 26, I will remove from you a heart of stone. Now we all know that the central characteristic of stone is its heart. So the very essence of our being, that center of our whole personality, that which affects every part of our being in our natural state, he says, is unimpressionable. It cannot be impressioned with truth and reality. What about the spirit? Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. In our natural condition, we are spiritually dead. That means we are incapable of responding to the things of God. That can either find expression in a militant atheism, or, get this, it can also find expression in a vague belief in God. Do you know it is possible for spiritually dead people to believe in God? But the interesting thing is, He is not a natural part of their lives at all. It's okay to talk about God in church when you show up once in a while. But try mentioning God at a cocktail party. Try mentioning Him at a baseball game. Somehow that isn't right. That doesn't fit. That's what I mean by spiritual deadness. And then how about the mind? He says... You must no longer live as the Gentiles do. And Paul in the Ephesians context, the Gentiles referred to everybody who was not part of God's purposes, which means today any one of us in our natural state. Look what he says about Gentile thinking. Futility of their thinking, darkened in their understanding, and ignorant. Now those are pretty strong words. Futile thinking, darkened understanding, and ignorance. And immediately some of us will respond and say, that can't be true. I know all kinds of people who don't follow Jesus Christ who are brilliant, logical people. They're not foolish, they're not ignorant. And you're absolutely right. Most of the progress that has been made, the technological breakthroughs, etc., most of them have been made, at least in the last 30 or 40 years, by men and women who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. So what does it mean that they are futile, darkened and ignorant? You see, the Bible never uses these words in an intellectual sense at all. It is, uses them in a moral sense. And this word is critical, the word futile. It is exactly the same word which in the Old Testament is translated by the book of Ecclesiastes, vanity. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. It means, futility of vanity means it doesn't accomplish anything at the end when everything's over. When the curtain finally comes down, there's nothing there. That's the meaning of the word futile. So, in a, the old mind, the mind of the old self can be brilliant, can be logical, but still futile in that it accomplishes nothing at the end. The natural self can accumulate huge amounts of knowledge, but not the wisdom to use the knowledge in the way God said it needs to be used, to benefit humanity and use it for the glory of God. And when we put it that way, we only have to look around us to see how true that is. 
couple of years ago, I remember a Time magazine article devoted to Antarctica and said, now that man has arrived, there is no more clean place on the earth. That's what technology has done today and we know that. Human beings taken as a whole are probably far worse off given all of our technological improvements as well than maybe they were a couple of hundred years ago. Okay, what about the body? Ephesians 4, Paul goes on to say, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Loss of sensitivity, given over to sensuality, indulgence in impurity and a continual lust for more. My good friend David Brandon many years ago told me a story about uh, an incident that happened in his life when he was a teenager. He'd gone to the dentist and you know the dentist often freezes uh, or whatever and then the lips don't, you can't feel anything for a while. He and his cousin Glenn were walking back home and he touched it and he felt no pain. So he thought this was a chance to prove how strong he was. So he said to Glenn, punch me in the face. <laughs> and he did. And he didn't feel anything. So he said, do it again. I don't know how many times he let him punch him that way, but he didn't feel anything. But when he got home, he saw the horrifying results of it. It is a near perfect illustration of this process. You lose sensitivity, <laughs> you give yourself over to things that are terribly harming you with a continual lust for more and you don't even know it's hurting. That's what the Apostle Paul says, we are in our natural state. Now once again it's time for an objection because some of you are going to say that can't be possibly true. I know all kinds of non-Christians who don't live like that. They live good lives, they live clean lives. What do you mean they're giving themselves over to sensuality? Let me make two comments on that. First of all, the underlying principle is still the same. In our natural condition, we have very little sensitivity to what is good for us versus what is harmful for us. That's the basic principle. But even more to the point, have we ever asked the question, is the goodness of these people their gift to God or is it God's gift to them? What if these people had grown up in a different environment? What if they had grown up in a setting where their family background was lousy and their childhood was terrible? Who knows how far along they would have been on this process. It is really what the theologians call common grace. Common grace extended to in our natural condition that arrests this process. And one of the most powerful illustrations I've ever heard of this was during the Nuremberg trials when one of the concentration camp survivors, Yehiel Dinur was his name, was brought in to testify against Adolf Eichmann. As soon as he saw Eichmann on the stands, he collapsed in a crumbling heap on the floor. And later on when Mike Wallace was interviewing him on CBS 60 Minutes, Mike showed him that film clip and said, what happened to you? Why did you collapse? Were you overcome with hatred? Were you overcome with anger? He said, none of those things. He said, long ago in the concentration camp, he said, Adolf Eichmann looked like a demigod. Right now, as soon as I came in, as soon as I saw he was an ordinary human being, he said, I thought to myself, I am just like him. And he concluded by saying, Adolf Eichmann lives in every one of us. Given the right conditions, every one of us would be in that situation. That's our condition. So put it all together in the form of a diagram. Because a picture, they say, is worth many hundreds and thousands of words. Here's what our old self looks like. A hard stony heart, impression, unimpressionable at the center of our being, a darkened, futile, ignorant mind, a dead spirit, unable to respond to the things of God, and a powerful body that is a ruler and a tyrant over us. That's what we are like outside of Christ. Now what does Jesus Christ do for us when we commit ourselves to Him? Look at a whole new set of what the scripture says. And we'll read it in each case. First of all, these sections about the heart. I will take away the heart of stone and I'll give you a new heart a heart of flesh. And what is this essential characteristic of flesh as compared to stone? 
flesh is impressionable. It's soft. It can retain certain things. And God says, I'm going to put two things in it. I will put my law on their hearts. I will give them a singleness of heart so they will fear me. And he has poured out his love into our hearts. So at the very center of our being, that which affects everything else in our life, a radical transformation takes place. That which is hard is made soft and can progressively be impacted with the law of God, the love of God and the fear of God. That's what he does to the heart. What about the spirit? Because of his great love for us, God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead. So he takes dead people and makes them alive. He gives us a new spirit along with a new heart and he puts his Holy Spirit within us. So now we have a new Godward sensitivity. Not only are we able to respond to the things of God, God now is not a stranger to be locked up inside church on Sunday morning. God becomes a natural habitat, uh, uh, circumstance and atmosphere in which we live our lives. We can take him with, him, with, him every, with us everywhere and we are equally at home with God in the church, in the school, in the university, at the ball games. That's the transformation of spirit. Now what about the mind? What does he do for the dark and futile and ignorant mind? He says, you've been made new in the attitude of our minds. Something changes in, the, in our mindset. Rather than only use input data that comes from outside to shape our thinking, we now begin to shape our thinking by a whole different set of input, which is the mind of God himself. And that fundamental change in attitude triggers a process. Look at the process. You have put on the new self, which is being renewed, this, you ma- you're made new in the attitude and as a result of that you start on a new process of being renewed in knowledge and in the image of our creator. See we were made in the image of God. That image was broken at the fall and when we come back to Jesus Christ there is a renewing process that begins within our mind. And what about our bodies? Romans chapter 6 verse 6 says our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be rendered powerless. In other words the tyranny of the members of the body over us has been broken. So it no longer is our master, but we can be its master. Okay, take all of this and put it on a diagram and here's what it looks like. Instead of a darkened, futile and ignorant mind, we now have an old mind, but it's renewable. Instead of a powerful body, we have a body whose power is broken over us. Instead of a dead spirit, we have a new spirit and the Holy Spirit living within us. And instead of a hard, stony heart, we now have a heart of flesh on which the law of God, the love of God and the fear of God is written. Now I don't know about you, I look at something like that and I say praise God. This is why Booth was able to write O boundless salvation. This is why Hebrews is able to say how can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? You know, this is what that poor, much maligned, much misunderstood phrase born again really means. It doesn't mean some pyrotechnics of some televangelist. It means this miracle of transformation. It literally means to be born from above. It's something that God does within us that transforms us at the center of our being, radically changes our minds, breaks the power of our bodies and gives us a whole new Godward dimension and focus to our lives. And this transformation we can never do by our own good works or efforts. It's something that God does in us. This is what it means when if uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, they are new creatures. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. Okay, well, how does this all relate to faith? And how does this all relate to sexual sanity? Let me speak first of all to those who perhaps have never yet come to that point in their lives where they have committed themselves to become followers of Jesus Christ. 
victory over temptation in your life. A life of progressive holiness and purity. In your thought life or in your actions. In the sexual area of your life or any other. None of it is going to be possible by self-reliance, by self-improvement techniques. All of that is, the, is faith in faith. The power of positive thinking and it won't do you any good. The only thing, only starting point that was going to make that kind of holiness and victory possible is to have this kind of radical renewal at the very center of our beings. Now the scriptures also say something very significant and serious about this condition that we come into this world naturally. Ephesians says, Paul writes in Ephesians says, we are by nature in this condition objects of the wrath of God. The absolute holiness of God accepts nothing less than perfect sinlessness. And therefore we all stand condemned in our natural state. And as I have reminded you many times before, the wrath of God is not some petulant, angry, tribal deity who is waving a big stick up in heaven because he didn't get his own ways. The wrath of God is a reference to what happens when the awesome, infinite holiness of God comes up with sinful imperfection. Whether in its brutal forms or in its most gentle, covered exterior. It is only through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross that the judicial demands of God's holiness against our sin was fully satisfied so that the grace, mercy and love of God could flow out and make this kind of transformation possible in our lives. Now, some of you may be sitting here saying, oh, that's all a lot of nonsense. I don't believe any of that stuff. May I say to you, if you're in that camp, as gently and yet as firmly as I can, it's just an indication how dead your spirit is and how hard your hearts are. But I know there are others here who have been drawn to God, who are on a journey, maybe for weeks, maybe for days, maybe for months, maybe for years, and something within you has been propelling you Godward. And you don't quite know why, you don't quite understand the process. And you're here this morning. Well, just take the next step. Commit yourself to Jesus Christ. Acknowledge that there is nothing that you can do to bring about this kind of a transformation. And ask him to take that hard heart and make it into a soft heart. To take that futile, darkened and ignorant mind and make it into a renewable mind. To take a powerful body and break its tyranny. And to take that deadness in spirit and infuse new life into it. Then what? Let me now shift to those of us who have made a commitment to Christ. Those people who are still crying out. God hasn't come through for me yet. What do I do? What does all this have to do with answering that question? In 1962, almost 30 years ago, my country of India was involved in a brief but severe skirmish with the Pakistan government. And one of the key elements in the Indian arsenal and their air force was a tiny little single-seater, highly maneuverable aircraft known as the NAT. And they were working round the clock to manufacture as many of these and put them in the air. In order for them to tilt the balance of power in the warfare, the, the military strategists had, had determined that there was a certain place and part of the battle was fought in, fought in mountainous regions. There was no place to land this aircraft. The only thing that looked like a possible landing strip was too narrow. And so they concluded that it couldn't be done. 
and the battle continued in spite of their air superiority they really couldn't turn the tide until one pilot decided I don't care what they tell me I'm going to land that plane on that place and he did it the interesting thing is as soon as he did it one pilot after another began to land the plane on that trip and the battle was won what's the principle there the principle is very clear the only battles that we will win are the battles that we believe can be won if we believe that a battle cannot be won we'll never win it but if we are once convinced that a battle can be won then yes we'll win it that's what he's talking about here when God gives to us these commandments in the area of our sexuality that the fulfillment of the human sexual drive is intended to be accomplished with a simultaneous pursuit of intimacy with God and intimacy with one man and one woman for life God was giving those commandments to people whom he had already transformed and given within them that which was necessary to be able to win the battle this isn't the power of positive thinking it's the power of positive believing in what Christ has done for us look what did he say about the law, about the heart he said i'll put the law on your heart you know what it means to have something in our hearts it means we love that thing when someone's close to our heart that's just a way of saying i love that person or that thing when god says i'll put the law within my heart he says you won't look upon this as something oppressive i'll get you to the point where you love the law of the lord where you will love the commandments to be holy and to be pure and he said i'll put the fear of god into your heart combined with that love will also be a, a purifying reverential awe of god that's why the psalmist says the fear of the lord is perfect or it is pure and it endures forever and then he also says i will pour out my love into your hearts so we will not only love the law we will love the law giver as well this has to be our starting point in the battle in the ongoing struggle for sexual sanity those who are here have to begin by allowing this transformation to take place and those who are here have to cling tenaciously to one fact the battle can be won let this reality of this fourfold transformation progressively grip you so that that conviction will keep welling up within your heart that this battle can be won and therefore i'll never throw in the towel and i will never quit no matter how long the battle takes john white in his book eros defiled says it so beautifully let me read it thank god for all your sexual feelings don't hate them they may be as difficult to manage as an unbroken horse but they represent one of god's richest gifts to you he made you feel sexual desire be glad and rejoice in it thank him too for the day when you will be master of your sexual drives though it tarry it will come if you let god be master in other areas as well quit hating yourself refuse to listen to the endlessly tortuous accusations of the accuser of the brethren who accuses you day and night if you are cast down god waits for you with wide open arms by all means groan but take your shame to the throne of grace where blood will wash it away your will is being freed and will be freed from the grip of sexual distortions too one day so learn to laugh at your chains in faith and then this beautiful passage at the end refuse to let your failure cause you discouragement and self disgust humility this is so beautiful the sentence humility does not rest upon bafflement and discouragement and self disgust at our shabby lives a brow beaten dog slinking attitude it rests upon the disclosure of the consummate wonder of god 
Listen to it again, folks. I don't know about you. I was so excited when I read it put this way. Humility does not rest upon bafflement and discouragement and self-disgust at our shabby lives, a brow-beaten, dog-slinking attitude. It rests upon the disclosure of the consummate wonder of Almighty God. And what is the wonder that He can bring about a transformation like this? That's humility. And he goes on to say, quoting Thomas Kelly, When you catch yourself again, lose no time in useless self-recriminations. Breathe a silent prayer. Agonize before God. Prayer of forgiveness. Begin again just where you are. Offer your broken worship up to Him and say, This is what I am, except thou aid me. Admit no discouragement, but ever return quietly to Him and wait in His presence. So don't ever throw in the towel. Don't quit. It took me 14 years probably because most of it I had to struggle by myself until my thought life came totally and completely under control. You don't need to wait that long as you start putting some principles into practice. One more implication with that we are finished. Even though there has been a dramatic transformation takes place within us, some of it is total and some of it is partial. If you look at the spirit, a dead spirit has been made alive. There are no half alive or half dead people. We use that in everyday language, but a half dead person is very much alive. Try doing away with them and see what happens. In the same way a hard stony heart has been made soft. There's nothing we can contribute to that process. It's finished, done, total. A hard heart has become soft and a dead spirit has become alive. There's nothing more to do in those two areas. But look at the other two. He didn't take a dark and futile and ignorant mind and he didn't make it new. He only made it renewable. Guess whose job it is to take a renewable mind and start making it new? Our job. And as far as the body, he didn't take a powerful body and make it into a body that fully obeys everything we say. He just broke its tyranny. Guess whose job it is to teach this body that you're not my master anymore, I am your master. Our responsibility. And so while we gaze at the consummate wonder of God, refuse to throw in the towel, keep on persevering, because we believe the battle can be won. Let's also remember that we need to commit ourselves to a lifelong process of renewing a renewable mind and breaking the tyranny of the body or or asserting the tyranny of the body has been broken. And that's the topic of the next two messages. But for this morning, I trust that you will leave this sanctuary with a light heart, with a buoyancy in your spirit that you may not have come in with. Why? Because you know the battle can be won. And the prayer guide for this week is entirely structured around making this truth come alive inside you. Take it, pray it through and you will come back much better prepared to obey God in the steps of renewing our mind and asserting mastery over our bodies.